and welcome. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. I am your normally your host, Saren Kaster, uh, but I am a miss of my co- normal co-hosts, and in fact, you will be largely a miss of me because it is time, just in time for Christmas. Your Christmas present from us of The Green Majority is to not depress the crud out of you today. No pressure, Frank. <laughs> Uh, is that it's time for our quarterly uh, eco-artist roundtable featuring uh, Toronto composer Frank Horvat. Welcome, and thank you for taking over the show today. Thank you very much, Saren. Uh, it's great to be here for the occasional sec- uh, uh, occasional episode of the eco-artist roundtable here on The Green Majority. This is our second time doing this, so I'm really excited to have that. And for those of you who don't know what the eco-artist roundtable is, it is when a group of artists get together and uh, discuss climate change, the environment, and how the uh, artistic sector, or us artists, what role we have to play in bringing about awareness and environmental issues. Without further ado, the roundtable is made up with three guests here in our studio, and I'd like to introduce each of them for you. First up is Kevin Matthew Wong. Uh, He's a Toronto-based theatre creator, performer, musician, producer, and environmentalist. He's the co-founder and artistic director of Broadleaf Theatre, a company that merges environmentalism and live performance. Kevin is a graduate of the University of Toronto with a BA in theatre performance and international relations. As an arts administrator, he has worked with Cahoots Theatre, the Toronto Fringe, and music theatre company Music Picnic, among others. Kevin, thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Frank. All right. Next up, we have Nina Montono. Am I saying it right? Montiano. Montiano. Thank you. And Nina is an ecologist a novelist of science fiction and fantasy. In addition to eight published novels, uh, Nina has written short stories, articles, and nonfiction books, which have been translated into several languages throughout the world. Recognition of her work includes the Midwest Book Review Reader's Choice Award, finalist for Forward Magazine's Book of the Year Award, and the SLF Fountain Award, and the Delta Optimist Reviewer's Choice, Nina quite a career. She writes articles on the environment and sustainability, and you are also on the faculty here at the University of Toronto. Is that correct? I I am indeed. Well, thank you for being here, Nina. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And finally, uh, we have Mark Adair. Mark Adair is a Toronto-based visual artist. He's a graduate of York University and the University of Victoria. He is a founding member of the Torontonianus collective with whom he has exhibited since the mid-1990s. He has exhibited with Loop Gallery since 2004. His work has been featured in the Patrick Jenkins documentary, Death is in Trouble Now, which aired on Bravo Television. That was also the basis for a 25-year retrospective of his work, which was mounted at Brock University's Rodman Hall Art Center. Mark, thanks for being here. Pleasure to be here. Well, so here we are uh, for episode number two of the Eco Artist Roundtable. So many things to talk about in our environmental world. And the one reason why um, I approached Saren to do uh, have this type of show and we came up with this idea was because the artists and the, uh, the politicians, the lawyers, the activists who are doing this you know, full time and that's their full time gig, 
they obviously have a lot to say on this issue, but I feel strongly that us artists, or as I like to call us, artivists, um, are really doing a lot of amazing things in the really in the world of um, of uh, eco awareness and uh, climate change awareness. So, I just want to start off with a general question to start off the conversation here. What role do you think? specific things do you think that the artistic community has to play, has to play in the environmental movement? Lena? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that's a huge question. Um, but I think artists generally have always been the voice of humanity. Uh, we are the recorders of the state of um, society at the time. So society looks to us for an interpretation of what's going on. And so there's a responsibility for all art, um, doesn't matter what kind of art it is, that is essentially going to assess things and address things in, in many different ways, interpretation. So there's lots of different ways of interpreting. So we use metaphor a lot in, in writing, in visual arts, in dance, and metaphor approaches people on different levels. It speaks to the universal. And it's a really good way, effective way of reaching out and telling us what's going on. Kevin? Um, I think a lot about how political and environmental theater creators are kind of, maybe kind of like a connective tissue between people who are I would consider the experts in the thing and the, the theater-going audiences. And in so like way, interpreters? Kind of like interpreters, exactly, yeah. yeah. And, and I think that idea of metaphor is really important to, I don't know if demystify is the right word, but certainly to put things into layman's terms, I think is an important role for theater artists. To, to bring out different perspectives, too, to surprise, to incite. Certainly. You I know, think, that kind of stuff, to yeah. get people moving, thinking feeling and reframing things that maybe they've only seen framed in news media um, I think is another important responsibility of any uh, theater creator that is interested in creating on environmental issues yeah. do, do you think they will listen to us more or less because we are not in the media hmm more mm -hmm. why they trust us more Interesting. Oh. Well, that's a responsibility. Should they? Too. I mean, we have no. We don't have like. I mean, you go. You're a. You go to journalism school, and you're. It's like the Hippocratic Oath for doctors, except for journalists, it's supposed to be about the truth, right? Nobody's telling us we have to tell the truth in our work. I think art artists have always been thought of telling the truth. That's I don't true. think an artist can make strong work if they're not telling the truth. Mm. I mean, if you try to lie or fabricate or imitate, you always fall short. And someone, yeah. someone next to you is telling the truth. Their voice will ring more clearly, and, and you look like a, a, a flop. You sound like a flop. You have to tell the truth. Yeah. Right. Do you think, because, you know, as artists, we have for centuries, we've been like programmed that we want attention. Please watch us. Please listen to us. Please look at our work. You know what I mean? Yes, that, that's how, that's how we're wired. Do you think that that sort of takes away from our, um, our voice of, uh, 
what's the word I'm looking for, from our voice of being able to be objective about things or that the public, because we have perhaps this, uh, we have this ulterior motive. Hey, look at us, look at what we're doing, that kind of thing that perhaps, you know where I'm going with this? Yeah, except yeah. except the cliche is the starving artist. So it's even though that's true, we are, what do you call it, neophytes or whatever, we want attention, we don't know how to get it. Right. right. I mean, that's why we have agents. <laughs> That's it's true. true. It's true. Yeah, we need we need PR people. We need marketing yeah, people. Yeah, we're, we're lousy at that. Yeah, absolutely. That's hilarious. No, I completely agree with that. Um, but yeah, I, I do, especially in this era of fake news. I mean, this term yeah. fake news, I actually even composed a piece recently on this thing because oh, I constantly funny. hear people talking about fake news. And, and I'm thinking, and I know a lot of people personally who are like, oh, well, Basically, if the main, if a certain news organization organization reports something related to climate change, specifically about damaging thing, uh, some sobering news that is scientifically proven and that nobody should be arguing about, but they are, you know. But because that news organization is saying, and you know, the Trumps of the world out there are screaming, then all of a sudden, oh. You know, now it's not that. So that's why maybe I'm thinking, do we have a role, you know, to fill that gap? Yeah. Yeah. Well, just as much as we're, we seem to be turning to individuals. Right. And again, as you said, we're looking for trust, right. that genuine voice. And we're, we're, for better or worse, looking for that genuine voice in other places, not right. in the professional places. It's the same thing with reviews. As a writer... I seek reviews um, like crazy. But it's interesting that the public seems to uh, trust, more trust reviews on Amazon, for instance, by readers than they do a review by such and such, you know, some professional reviewer. Right. They're looking for that granola, that kind of ground roots, genuine again, looking for that genuine voice as a appeared talking to a peer. Right. And that seems to be, I don't know, somehow the way we're going right now. Right. Okay. Well, that's a great point. I think we should try to pick up on that after, but we're going to take a, a break. Um, so if you're just joining us, um, we're, uh, my name is Frank Horvat. I'm a composer, a musician, and, um, and music educator here in Toronto. I'm being joined by Kevin uh, Matthew Wong, Nina Montiano, and Mark Adair, and we are having the Eco Artist Roundtable edition of the Green Majority today. We're going to take a quick musical break right now, if that's okay, and then we'll be right back. Stay tuned. Welcome back to the Green Majority, Eco Artist Roundtable Edition. Um, the piece you were just listening to there is my composition called the Thailand HRD, specifically Movement Number Twenty Three. Uh, the Thailand HRDs is a string quartet project um, and album where we're highlighting um, missing and murdered. 
um, Thai um, uh, environmental and human rights activists that have been murdering on disappearing over the years. It's all based on a photo essay by Thai-based photographer Luke Duggleby. The group you heard performing um, movement number 23 was the Mivos Quartet, an album that just came out last month on the Atma Classic label. Um, movement 23 is in honor of a gentleman named Precha Thongpan. He was 57 and he was shot dead on a main road in September 27, 2002, in the Thong Song district of Nakhon Si Thamarat province in Thailand. He was campaigning against a poorly conceived sewage treatment plant. He was the leader of the Tamban Kwan Krod Environmental Conservation Group. Um, so, um, Saren, you had something you want to say, and then after that, I, I, if it's okay with everyone, I just want to maybe talk a little bit more about human rights and yeah. the environment. Go ahead. Yeah, great. No, uh, no. So I just wanted, I just wanted to jump in on on that specific thing because I, I had a perspective as sort of an outsider on that question you were asking. So you guys were talking about the role of artists, right? And you were sort mm-hmm. of contrasting against journal, you know, environmental journalists. And so I don't have a journalism degree, but with scare quotes that people can't see, I'm an environmental journalist. Uh, and so I can tell you from my perspective, there is one giant advantage that I feel that artists have, and it's very specific. And what it is is that often if you're talking to people who is uh, not an enemy, but someone who's like, quote unquote, on the other side. So say just for the sake of argument, a climate change denier, but not like some big person on the Internet or like whatever, like your neighbor. Right. And you're just having yeah. a personal conversation. If you're trying to con- change someone's mind about something that they have some like emotional ego invested in and it's you, it seems like a confrontation, right? It's a battle. It's me versus you. It's a pride. debate, a verbal yeah. debate. Right. And, yeah. and, and pride get wrapped in it and ego gets wrapped in it. And often we try and we, if we think we're right, we anticipate what someone else is going to say and we interject them, even if we've only done so in our mind, right? And that means that we've stopped listening. When we're dealing with art, the art, there's always like, things are always not necessarily what they're presented, right? Sometimes a bloody yeah. knife is a bloody knife and sometimes it's a metaphor for love. Right. And so people can't jump ahead as much, which which means they actually wait and listen. Yeah. And that That's is a, a huge point. difference. And I can tell you, I feel you probably don't feel it as much from your side, but trying to have those conversations and being preempted so often, I am very aware of that. Kevin. I think that that so reminds me of the, the reason why uh, the company that I run, Broadleaf Theater, started doing environmental theater in particular, yeah. because the theater way, way back functioned as a community space, um, as a reflection of, of the issues of the day. Um, to some extent it still does, but on the point of listening and being able to get the community to hear perspectives that they wouldn't usually hear, and also um, getting people to interact in particular with activists on the ground, um, you really only get kind of clickbait uh, headlines about activist work, right? Because how else are you going to get it on your Facebook news feed? It's kind of some sort of sensational thing, but we forget that these are people. the, the grandparents that are, are being arrested in the in the West Coast uh, against the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Right. Um, mm-hmm. It's, it's mm-hmm. kind of still, even that, to have that article is a bit sensational. Um, right. But to use our, to, yeah. To well, further to your point and Saren's point, the, the thing that, the advantage that I see us having in what we do is we could be talking about the most sobering, awful thing or like this like the the piece that i just played the recording i just played it's it's on a terrible theme but 
I'm always mesmerized. I can be telling somebody the most sobering, awful, tragic thing through music or for all of you through your respective disciplines. But at the same time, I can make them feel beauty. I can make them cry, but not cry from frustration or anger. And I can make them laugh. In fact, Kevin, the the first thing I, the reason why I know you and met you because of of our of a mutual friend was because um, Catherine and I went to check out your show at the Fringe a few years ago, which was a comedy. Yeah, if I remember that correctly, oh, yeah. and it was like I was howling. It was so oh, hilarious, so and, it, and it, it was so funny. But it was also on what mm-hmm. Kevin does is you know tell tell the story of climate change through through theater. So. Well, satire is one of the best ways to get Absolutely. something across, right? Absolutely. Um, I write science fiction for the same reason because right. it's totally metaphoric, right. but it is about now, just Absolutely. like Margaret Atwood's Handmaid's Tale isn't about something that's happening in the future. It's about what's happening now. It's an interpretation, a metaphoric interpretation. And it allows us to look at these things in a different light. It's almost like it separates us so that we can look at ourselves better. So, Nina, that's what actually um, I find very intriguing about your work. And, and I think science fiction in general is because science fiction as a genre of literature is all about um, basically telling the future, right? And, mm-hmm. and I, there's, no, there's, no other, there's no other great you know, topic like climate change to cover in that genre because um, you know, you're supposed to be envisioning creatively what a future world might be like. But in essence, the, the scientific world is already telling us what that bleak world would be like. How do you juxtapose that in your own work as far as the creativity goes, but relating that to the, the science that's already out there or even expanding upon it? Well, it's all in, in science fiction. It's all in the world building, the, the, the world that you build. Again, it's all metaphoric. And I teach this in my course uh, about writing, that the world that is that populates the characters in a story is really metaphoric. It's very symbolic of what's going on. So most of my stories actually are what I call eco-fiction, and the environment is a character, a character that the other characters relate to, the main character particularly. So there's a, a, a total link, intersection between those two that tells another story. It's at the heart of the story. So there's many levels in writing. We, we think, I mean, I, I, originally I would, I would have thought that the written word is the least metaphoric of the arts. There's visual arts, there's dance, there's theater. They're, they all involve a lot more um, interpretation. But the word can as well. It's not, most people think of it as literally, but... But it's not because it, it affects you on many different levels. Again, that's the power of how someone writes, if they write well or not. If, if it's written well, it's going to be all metaphoric. So again, to go back to the world, even though it's a totally different, it could be an alien world on some you know, planet XYZ, but it is talking about now, right. my world most science fiction does that whether yeah, it's literature sure. or film you you can always tell when it was put out because you know when it was released because it's reflecting the the, the social issues yeah. of that day for so sure. margaret atwood's uh mad adam trilogy is all about this world right 
Very, it's climate, very fascinating. It's called, I mean, there's a whole genre called climate fiction that speaks to climate change. Either it's a, a post-climate change or something is going on. And again, the key there is that the environment itself is a character. Right. And if you look at it that way, then you can see some scenarios coming out. So, so it's very powerful. I just want to maybe explore a little bit more the, the idea of past, present, and future a bit. Mark, I w- when I was checking out your work, um, uh, and I was really sort of uh, intrigued by your delving back, your work delving back into sort of medieval times and the sort of the, that imagery. So we were just talking about how... Your Nina's work is is set in the future, but really about the present. How do you sort of see that sort of going opposite way, uh, opposite way, time to time ways, and in the work and the stories you're trying to tell through your visual art? Well, the stories I try to tell, um, and the reason I went back to the medieval period is because the medieval period is a standout uh, in Western history as a period without hope. And when you uh, just now mentioned human rights, I think ideally children should be entitled to hope. And um, the current political administration seem dedicated to depriving them of hope. This neglect of uh, eco-concerns is catastrophic. And I feel it, I feel it so deeply uh, so when I'm doing these uh, charcoal drawings, I can go back to the medieval period when they were suffering from the ravages of the plague, the Hundred Years' War, uh, climate change then, too. They had a, a mini ice age. Mm-hmm. And when you look at that period, and uh, when I look at that period and I see the art, I feel it as if it was uh, made yesterday. Hmm. That's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It I, it's because again, you're you're telling the story of today. Surely, yeah. yeah. Fascinating, fascinating. Even though a lot of that work is very emblematic of like of those uh, of those time periods. Um, so, what do you think the artistic com- consumer, just the general? lover of art, the art connoisseur, the person who will go to Loop Gallery to see Mark's exhibit, to read your books, um, a book fan, somebody who's going to go to a, um, um, you know, the Fringe to see a whole bunch of shows and Kevin's show is listed right there. Do you think that general type of artistic consumer out there has a true yearning for more eco-inspired art? Or do you think, oh my gosh, it's just too much, we're getting bombarded, this is way too much stuff, and they're actually avoiding this stuff? That's a question that I, I ask myself a lot. Yeah. Um, and, and whether um, the word environment should actually be in the description of the work that I create, whether that deters people from coming to see it in the first place. Um, I, when, in fact, I think so many works... Uh, it's, it's, it's in the zeitgeist in an undeniable way. Like, yeah. I, how do you create a work that doesn't have something to do with climate exactly. change today? Exactly. It's a label. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's a way that I, I, I'm worried that people mm-hmm. dismiss work with as well. Um, but it's, yeah, it's something that I struggle with for sure. Yeah. I mean, I was writing eco-fiction before I knew I was writing eco-fiction. It's the same thing. Now mm-hmm. the labels come out, and now suddenly I'm writing eco-fiction. Mm-hmm. Wow. So I agree with you. I have problems with that too. And 
I just keep going. Yeah. I don't know. It's part of your brand, though. I mean, this is all about we don't want to go in. We don't want to go that direction, do we? Well, no, no. no actually, I don't mind at all because I don't mind at all because, like I said earlier, I mean, we, just let's be honest here, right? We are artists, and that's a big thing for us, uh, Kevin. I'll say in in Toronto, we have a lot of um, in the theater community, a lot of companies that deal with culturally specific work, and I think right. their political organizing is quite important. Um, we don't have any theater companies. We have very small theater companies that are working towards uh, making work about environmental issues and also changing the way that we create work, um, not only in terms of means of production, but also um, in, in bringing those ideas from the environmental movement into the work. Um, and I, I wonder if us existing as an entity is making it a more niche thing or it's encouraging other people. I think that's... it's something that I, I'm thinking about. I think yeah. we do need to encourage more um, creators to be creating work about the environment because otherwise people are thinking that the companies that exist to create environmental work are taking care of it. It's somehow right. done right. and settled. Yeah. Mark, related question. If I, if you approach a gallery to, to pitch to show your work, is it harder or easier for you or is it harder for you if the work is exploring something on a on a th issue related to climate change. You would have to be extremely careful, and um, I can think of something in that happened to me within the last year where I was self censoring because uh, I felt that the place I was uh, speaking with. Um, I felt like they were under attack in their community. Uh, it was a, it's a place that's uh, very politically conservative. And this particular cultural facility, um, they must feel like uh, they have to pull the wagons in a circle and keep their mouths shut about everything or there'll be a backlash. Their funding will be cut. So maybe here in the big city, um, there's more tolerance for a political opinion, but there are places where there is no tolerance. Do you see, I, I'm interested specifically about visual art because I do see it being somewhat, oh, we're obviously all four of us represent artistic disciplines that have a long, centuries-long tradition in our Western, you know, art world, obviously. But specifically for me, being a composer of modern classical music, I walk in the I walk in the shadows of, you know, Beethoven and and so many great Bach, Beethoven, Liszt, who very rarely explored any uh, political issues in their compositions. Some did, and they stand out, but it wasn't like it was a big thing, and even well into the 20th century um, as well. So I, I sometimes have been iffy about that, uh, you know, and seeing how will my music be received, um, any of my... Um, any of my compositions inspired by social, any type of social justice issue, how will they be received? Are they received less or more? It's it's very difficult, but should that stop us from doing what we do? No, obviously not. not. No, and I, and I would say I would add, um, who's seen uh, Bertinsky's work, uh, his latest? Yes, uh, Anthropocene. Yes. Mark at, no, the, at the AGO, right? I mean the, the 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 most recent one, right? Anthropocene, it's very different, right? And um, 
I think Saren was waving. No, as in he's seen, seen he's seen the oh, he's seen he it. Yeah, I was putting my we in fact um, we had I'm blanking on her name. The the pair of them were together, but we had the um, the yes author. Elizabeth That's whatever right. we had Elizabeth yeah. on the program yeah. at some point. Oh, right. excellent! But what's interesting is that it's obviously very related to what we're doing to the planet. Uh, and when you first go in and you see his work, it's it has this beauty about it, but it's ugly at the same time. Well, see, that's that's exactly the point I was making before, and I think this is the huge thing we have over the the pundits, the journalists, the you know the scientists and stuff. We are able to take what everything that they're saying and put it within this yeah. bubble of creativity that that stimulates not to be too artsy fartsy here, but just stimulates and titillates the the feelings and the emotions and the brain of the yeah. average Joe, you know? And I've had I've had climate change deniers come to my concert about, you know, I played a concert on like some music that I wrote around the theme of climate change. And I knew, I know these people personally, there was climate change deniers in the audience and they still wanted to talk to me after, tell me how much they enjoyed the music. So if I can't get through to them yes. consciously, maybe get the subcon. Exactly. And the art has exactly. that huge power. Yeah, Kevin, did you want to add? Yeah, on that thing about um, truth as well, like it's a, a mining of the contradictions that I think art allows us to do. And that's a thing that I think like an eco-journalist kind of can't, doesn't acknowledge the contradictions or can't acknowledge the contradictions yeah. so easily. Right. Well, uh, because they they're... They're supposed to report the truth. They're supposed mm-hmm. to be objective. Mm-hmm. And this is where the artist can come in and create this paradox, actually. Right. That's what Bratinsky's work mm. there was. Beauty and ugliness all together. Right. People walk out maybe being a little disturbed, but they don't know why. Yeah. Right. That's so, why. So if you're just joining us, um, this is uh, The Green Majority. My name is Frank Horvat, guest hosting today, and we're having our occasional eco-artist roundtable uh, talking about uh, climate change and the environment and artists' reaction to it. Um, we're having a lot of conversation around these types of issues, but we're also sharing art and talking about art and I think um, mixing that in with the show today. So I think today might be a good opportunity to have a little art break right now in this point in the show. And I'm going to invite um, Nina to share some work, uh, some of her writing. Um, Nina has a fabulous um, collection uh, or a fabulous book of nonfiction, which is called Water Is. Water Is dot, dot, dot. Uh And uh, Nina, uh, I don't know, you can just read right away or tell us a little bit about what you're going to read or whatever you'd like. Okay, thank you. So the subtitle is The Meaning of Water. So the book actually, it's a nonfiction. It's, uh, some people have called it a biography of water, and it's parsed out into 12 chapters that basically answer that question, water is. So the first one is magic, motion, frequency, prayer, joy, wisdom. So it gets really kind of weird. Starts off with science, magic. Um, all science is magic. <laughs> um, I'll just say a little bit about how this book came about. I'm, I'm a limnologist, scientist for many, many years. I went zoomed out in boats and did all kinds of cool stuff in the field and then came back and wrote reports for, we, we did studies. I was an, an environmental consultant 
working for pulp mills and et cetera, doing impact assessments and whatnot. And limnology is the study of fresh water. So I always wanted to write a book that basically explained all the cool things about water to lay public. Um, anything from water's crazy, uh, weird properties to the little creatures like tardigrades that, that can uh, live in outer space, uh, which do live in water. But uh, what I realized was uh, I kind of held off because I kept thinking I'm not the expert. I, you know, I want to be an expert before I write this. And I just, just started my career. And by the time I was finished with limnology, I'm now an author and a teacher, I realized that I didn't want to write so much that book as bring in all the fringe things that are going on with water. There's a lot going on with water that nobody wants to talk about, at least not in North America. It's really interesting how we're very conservative here, particularly in the States, um, on things to do with looking at possibilities. And one example would be, for instance, that water has memory. The Europeans are very happy to investigate that, to say, what if, what if? They will ask that question. Uh, the traditional scientists in North America will say, are you crazy? And leave it at that. So as a limnologist, as a scientist, I demurred to write about this because basically it would have impacted my career. Mm, interesting. And as it turns out, when I did come out with this book, there was a bit of impact. Mm. But I didn't care. <laughs> Good for you. So that's why it took me so long to write it. But Excellent. there you go. So I'll just read a short passage. Do you believe in serendipity or destiny? The pursuit of this book has been oddly serendipitous, influenced by what quantum physicist David Bohm would call implicate order, or what Jung would call synchronicity. Early on, during the research and writing of this book, I discovered that this project on water had become a gestalt watershed for all the important moments of my life, places I've been, things I've learned, people I'd met, and with whom I'd had surprising discussions and realizations, all spanning years, and many of them totally unrelated. And yet now, with a sudden flood of context, their significance has transcended into a new fabric of meaning, through surprising connection, like puzzle pieces, cooperatively arranging themselves into a symbiotic pattern of synchronicity, from a strange discussion with a fellow student in college to a learning moment in motherhood to meeting a mysterious stranger on the internet, or serendipitously reading an article that resonated and set in motion a new adventure. It's truly humbling. I've had watershed moments like this before, but none as all-encompassing. I taught limnology and served as an environmental consultant for 25 years. During that time, I waded and stumbled through northern muskeg, avoiding bears and moose. I scrambled up and down the talus slopes of my acid mine tailings ponds. I scrambled the tannic water of a rural dystopic lake, sorry, dystropic lake, I took sediment core samples from the bottom of a northern reservoir. I hiked through log, logged old-growth forest in search of fish-bearing streams, 
I sampled water over a 24-hour period along a working river impacted by industrial effluent. I collected and studied surface algal blooms as part of a limnological study of an urban eutrophic lake to create a community restoration plan. I replanted hectares of marsh with indigenous plants to restore its functionality. As a limnologist, environmental consultant, mother, and naturalist, I was blessed with the opportunity to see water in so many identities, circumstances, and places around the world. My mission is simple with this book, Water Is. I hope that somewhere, some among these pages, you have emotionally connected with water, as I have. It's that simple. Water Is has incorporated a synchronicity that defies space-time. I have no doubt that it's the result of quantum entanglement. Water is a singularity. Ah, very powerful. Thank you. Uh, so that is an excerpt from Water Is by Nina Montianu. Um, Nina, you wrote this book how many years ago? Um, it was published in 2016. Okay. It took so, me three years to write it. So you, this was, it's, it feels very much like a memoir, is it for you? Um, for yes. For that it, chapter of your life when you were working sure. in, the, in the sciences. Yeah. Um, the book is, has a lot of excerpts of my own personal experiences, and then I bring that into whatever I'm talking about in the, in each of the chapters. So it's, it is very much like a memoir. What, how is, how is this, how is writing that book and now listening to it and having it out there, how has that helped you come to grips with sort of this change of chapter as artists? We're always, you know, I feel like we're very transient often. How has that helped you, you know, uh, go through this transition in life of these different focuses? That's actually a very neat question because it did, in some ways, mark a change in my career, in my life, uh, kind of a commitment to work as a limnologist in a different way, um, to connect with people, to send the message out. Um, since writing this book, and as part of wanting to get it out, which is interesting, so the artist, when the artist is able to do that, that's really cool. When they're able to sell their work or whatever it is and get their message out at the same time, right. then that's all that's part a win -win. of the same thing, right? Yeah. It's a win-win-win. So I go out to grade 8 students, uh, grade 8 student classes, and I talk about water. So right. that's my new mission. And this book has helped me take that big step back to where I was when I was a teenager, marching on the streets, mm -hmm. protesting for the environment. So I've sort of come full circle. So Kevin or Mark, have you have you had similar experiences in your artistic life working on something that once it came out, you learned a lot more about the message that your the work was reflecting and also just your own personal personal relationship of how it affected you and maybe motivated you, Kevin or Mark? Sure. Um, the project that I'm currently working on, the Chemical Valley Project, right. has been the longest project that I've worked on continuously as a theater artist. And it's actually different in every iteration that we present. So even though we started the project two and a half years ago, um, every single version has been a different length of uh, uh, presentation and also has incorporated what's going on in the day-to-day -day in, in, in the world. But it was a, it's been a big journey because that project initially, I thought, 
it was going to be this big expose on Sarnia's chemical valley and its impact on the Amshanong First Nation. And I'm incredibly fortunate to work with Vanessa Gray and Lindsay Beasy Gray, two siblings who are also environmental activists, water protectors, land defenders from Amshanong First Nation on that project. And I thought, we're going to put on this show. We're going to get things shut down, right? right. Uh, I was mm-hmm. a bit naive. Yeah. Of course it was naive. <laughs> um, and the show became something totally different. I, I didn't realize when we started how important it was that I also reflected upon uh, my identity as a first-generation Canadian. As a, uh, I spoke with Professor Jill Carter, who is um, at the University of Toronto in the theatre department, and uh, Professor Carter is an Anishinaabe Ashkenazi elder. And I asked her about the project and uh, whether I should be making this thing about about the Amjanang First Nation. And uh, she said, well, where are you from? And I, I said, um, uh, my family, uh, they're from Hong Kong. And she said, well, you're from a colonized place too. Right. You're from a colonized place too. And, and, and that sent this whole project on a different journey of understanding who I was first before I put myself in context of that other story. That's very neat. They had very to go neat. together or, or, or they weren't genuine. And I think the power of, of what audiences get from the piece, I hope now, is also an understanding that the place that I came from at the start of creating that thing was, I was wrong. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and now it's interesting because it's a, it's a solo performance. I'm performing myself going through those realizations. Right. Yeah. So, Very cool. But I definitely, on, on, on your reading, Nina, I definitely felt that meeting Vanessa and Lindsay was that one yeah. of those moments of, yeah. of synchronicity of, of things lining up. and yeah, Those right. are the best moments, mm-hmm. aren't they? Just totally took me on a huge yeah. journey. Yeah. Yeah. Mark? Well, after Pat made the documentary on me and I saw it on TV and then we did the retrospective show, I had a very strange experience. You know, when you're an artist and you're in mid-career and you're uh, fielding one ball after another, in other words, this piece, then that piece, you're very caught up in it. And then I saw the retrospective and I realized that all of my work was not what I thought it was about at all. I realized it was just about anxiety. First of all, what, what did you think it was at on the surface? Well, you know, I have a history of... Uh, uh, political activism. I mean, for years I worked as a Green Party organizer and I thought that my work was optimistic and kind of forward-looking and I had this, uh, had this uh, opinion of myself <sighs> that was somewhat like that. I mean, I, I was you know, dealing with dark themes but then when I saw that it was, it was just like, oh, I'm scared. Mm-hmm. I'm really mm-hmm. scared. This is 25 years of fear I'm looking at. Yeah. That's I I think about that a lot. That really touched a nerve with me because I I often think I write everything. Everything I write is sad, and it really bothers me. And I find sometimes find that oh my gosh. Uh, and it and it uh, full disclosure. I I'm also been quite vocal about my own personal battle with depression, and I often think how does that relate? You know my my battle with depression and and being a activist on all these dire topics that we're exploring like climate change it just seems hopeless and that kind of thing is that related am i am i just naturally spewing out this music because on these themes and stuff because i just have a natural predilection towards that i don't know i'd say it's more like you're touching upon a universal something that's going on that's so. beyond you 
Yeah, I we're mean, all the same in that way, are, aren't we? Right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Jung's mm. collective consciousness, right. unconsciousness. I think that's the artist. What is the muse after all? I mean, we're right. picking up on that. And right. that's what we're reporting. And maybe that's why we're all reporting that. And maybe that's why we all are depressed <laughs> right. to some degree, because we're picking up on that. Right. Like we just have, we just, us, us and our, our artistic brethren, we just have the ability to, um, to translate it with yeah. our talents and, and make that come out so there's empathy from others who don't. So. Well, just really quickly, the, it was funny, people say, used to say the thing about you're not, maybe you're, you're, not, you're not necessarily paranoid if they're really after you. And it's like, well, you're not necessarily like, there's not necessarily something wrong with you. Maybe you're just paying attention. Absolutely. Yeah, perfect, perfect. That's a great exactly. way to say it. On that note, let's take a musical break. back here on the Eco Artist Roundtable edition of the Green Majority. Um, that was uh, the 35th and final movement of the Thailand HRDs, a composition of mine uh, that was performed by the Mivos Quartet. And that just was released on an album a few weeks ago by um, Atma Classic. Um, that particular movement is inspired by uh, a Thai a uh, person from Thailand, Mr. Thongnak Sawakchinda, 47, and he was shot nine times while sitting outside his home on July 28, 2011, in Samut Sakon town in Thailand. Thongnak had led villagers in um, various districts in a high-profile protest against air pollution, including dust and fumes from coal depots and separation factories. The composition is, all the compositions in the Thailand HRDs is based on the photo essay by Luke Duggleby, called for those who died trying. So um, just in a sort of a more for a segue into something, the reason why I want to play some of this music today is because coming up on Monday, coming up Monday is World Human Rights Day, Monday, December the 10th. So this is the, I believe, the 70th anniversary of the United Nations De Universal Declaration of uh, Human Rights. So it's sort of a, a big day. Um, yet... Um, with Luke's work or my work and a lot of the things you've explored, all of you and your own work, we, we continue to um, see massive injustice in the world. And now, of course, we're seeing it in the last bunch of decades uh, with, in related to the environmental the environment. Um, any thoughts on the idea of the connection between the environmental movement and human rights as far as having a clean environment being an intrinsic thing and furthermore how what are we doing as an artistic community to get that out there any of you yeah mark um, a friend of mine rochelle rubenstein she has a farm up in the calvin hills and she is confronting the water extraction industry and water has to be a human right and rochelle had uh, staged some events to do some awareness raising and uh the show I'm working on right now, uh, it's a collaboration with Patty Moratori, and we're going to be building a fountain, and that'll be in the loop show. And it's difficult, though, and always difficult for artists to avoid lecturing, and people have no appetite for it. So in a piece like the Fountain Project, 
I don't know if anybody could even tell we were thinking about human rights or politics, but it's there. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, Nina. Well, I was just going to say that they're totally connected, human rights, environmental rights. And I, in a way, that somehow has to be bridged in, in terms of how we see ourselves in the world. Right. Right now, we're most of us see ourselves as separate. We call nature nature, and we live in the city. I'd say, what is it, 90% of Canadians live in the city, live right. in this little tiny little band down in the southern part next to the states. And then the rest of the, rest of the 90% of the country is boreal forest where very few of us live, which is interesting. So what do we know about that environment? Right. Uh, what do we know about Canada generally? So we're not really connected. And that's part of the human rights. The, you mentioned, Mark mentioned water rights. There's also the right to have an environment around us that's, that's fully functional. Right. The trees, uh, the trees that play a very, very important role. What are we doing to our forests? Kevin, in the, the, the theater works you're producing and creating, um, how do you balance those two issues in the storytelling? Sure. Um, before I dive into that, yeah. I do want to say I don't don't want to forget that uh, Eunice Stoughton Camp has uh, uh, an injunction against them. Um, and I think on the topic of human rights right. and, um, and the environment, in this country, we really have to look to Indigenous leadership. And yes. we can't forget that. And we can't forget that the first people on this land are Indigenous leaders, and they've been stewarding it, this land for, for all of us Absolutely. for as long yes. as this yes. land can remember. Yeah. Um, I think as Canadians, we have a, a, yes. a very extra special perspective on that because it relates to our treatment of our, our First Nations people. And, yeah. and yes. there's the climate change issue. And of course, there's just human rights as far as having those Absolutely. things related. And so to, to Nina's point as well, to put us back into place is also to put us back in relation with Indigenous nations here. Definitely. Um, that's yeah. part of it. That's, the, that's a big step we could take. Mm-hmm. And we are taking it. Yeah. Okay. Now, back back in the early 1980s, uh, a chipper grad student named Mark Adair at the University of Victoria started to explore environment in his own work. And he started asking himself big questions. This is according to Mark's writing in 2010. The question that Mark was asking himself is, why can't we contend with our own behavior in the world? What is it, what is it about us? that drives us to do such destructive things. Mark Adair, do you have an answer to your own question eight years later? Yeah, we're greedy. We're endlessly greedy, every single one of us. And I think it's something that we have absolutely in common as a species with certain exceptions. But we love wealth, we love comfort, and we can't get enough of it. Is Is that why, in essence... Climate change just might gobble us up. Yep. <laughs> well, it's also that it's interesting that like greed is so codified, right? I mean, if you if you study economics too, it assumes that a consumer is this greedy entity or that they right. want the most of everything. Absolutely. Well, as a as an ecologist, limnologist, I look at it a little bit differently in terms of natural progression. You say we're greedy. Well, what maybe what species isn't in its own way? Right. The old idea is to be profligate and make more of itself, and eat and you know eat and have sex basically. Right. And etc. So how are we different that way? 
And we speak as ecologists about the process of succession. When a group or a community basically colonizes an area that's been destroyed, some, some disturbances occur. Absolutely. So something develops there. Right. Then it, in turn, funnily enough, creates a better habitat for something to succeed it. And I mean, we talk about, I mean, I, I talk about um, uh, forest succession right. and lake succession as lakes uh, develop early on and then become, eventually become right. filled in and become a marsh. And that, that's a natural process. Yeah, that, so exactly. Maybe I, that's I, what we're doing. I, I, I agree with you. We got just two minutes left, uh, and I really want to touch upon some things coming up for all of you. Um, uh, Kevin, where are we at with the Chemical Valley Project right now? Quickly. Sure. Uh, you can catch the proper Toronto premiere of the Chemical Valley Project next April, from April 4th to 21st at Theatre Passmarai. Um, yeah, would love to see you there and to, and to chat afterwards about the, the project. We will definitely check it out. Uh, Nina, you have a new project called Morphology. What's that about? Ah, it's an ongoing project. It's with 13 photographers. The vision of Jim Tovey, Councillor Jim Tovey, the late Jim Tovey, unfortunately, died suddenly, um, to, as part of an ongoing evolution to... to um, document, to document artistically the stages of a constructed wetland as part of a, of a development. And my writing, my little quotes are part of that. And the ph- photographs are amazing. And you so, said this is a Mississauga? It's it's all over, actually. Oh, okay. It's traveling about. Right. And it's going to be, it was in Mississauga. It was at the City Hall. It premiered at the uh, Pulp Mill. Sorry, not, not Pulp Mill. <laughs> my mistake, at the water treatment plant. Right. And then it was most lately, it was at in situ down okay. on uh, Lakeshore. So it'll continue. Well, that's that sounds like an interesting project indeed. Mark, you have a show coming up in January? January the 12th, the opening's the Saturday, and it's at Loop Gallery, and it's uh, 16 drawings and sculpture. Fascinating. Okay, so if anybody wants to check out all of your work or get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that, Kevin, for you? Uh, you can find us at broadleaftheatre.com. Excellent. And Nina? Uh, my writing at ninamanciano.ca or .me or about water is and anything to do with water, the meaning of water.com. And Mark? I think you can find me on the Loop website pretty easily. Loop Gallery, for sure. So um, I just want to thank everybody and, and Frank Horvat for me. Um, great to have these wonderful guests with us. Uh, Nina Montiano, Mark Adair, Kevin Matthew Wong. Thank you all so much for being here. And uh, I think if I did a good job, maybe we'll get to do this again. The pleasure was all mine, Frank. Thank you so much. Uh, we'll be back with your regularly regularly scheduled depressing news next week. Thank you. Stay tuned. Take care, folks.